Hello, and welcome to a new season of The Blacklist, where we explore the lives and legacies of classic Black Hollywood stars. But you don't know what it is to look white and be black. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. I spent a lot of time this past year reading and researching for fun, but also because I had no idea what to make this third season about. And I uncovered something that I had no idea even existed in as profound a way that it did. By reading Donald Bogle's Bright Boulevard's Bold Dreams, The Story of Black Hollywood, a novel that should be required reading, I was stunned to learn that in 1920s Hollywood, the biggest African-American star was eight years old. This season, we're going to explore the lives of several of the biggest and most impactful stars in Black Hollywood history all of which were children when they made headlines. You've heard endlessly about the lives of child stars like Shirley Temple, Mickey Rooney, and Judy Garland. Now let me tell you about the roller coaster lives of the original young black Hollywood. Okay, and now let's get into today's subject, the Dandridge Sisters. It is not an exaggeration at all to say that the Dandridge sisters' collective and individual success can be attributed to the relentless spirit of Black women. This all started with Ruby, who met the Dandridge sisters' father while living in Ohio. The pair quickly married and soon gave birth to daughter Vivian on April 21, 1921. But Ruby, a performer, soon realized she had ambitions too big for Ohio and too big for marriage. Like many women of the era, the initial marital and new mother bliss wore off and she found herself asking, is this all there is? She decided the answer to that was no. So she left domestic housewife life and her husband until she went back and got pregnant and gave birth to her second daughter, Dorothy, on November 9th, 1922. And the bliss wore off before Brewie gave birth and she left her husband for good with her two daughters, Dottie and Vivi, in tow. And took work as a maid and gigs where she could as the girls grew older. And then she met Geneva Williams, also an entertainer and also leaving her terrible marriage at a church function of all places. And effectively, the girls had a new mommy whom they were instructed to call Auntie Mama, which I've always thought was fucking weird. But anyway, by the time the girls were five and six, the girls who were known as the Wonder Children because of their acrobatic skills were making rounds, performing all throughout the Midwest at churches, schools, you name it. Then they took their efforts to the South, sponsored by the Baptist National Convention, which was a group of independent Black Southern churches. Dorothy later described this experience as, quote, like having a deal with MGM was for white folks, end quote. And by the time they were school age, 
They were seasoned performers on the circuit and showed no signs of slowing down. The same can be said of the vast majority of Americans until October 29th, 1929. Also known as Black Tuesday, the day the stock market crashed and sent America into the greatest depression it has ever seen. To this day. So people weren't exactly choosing the wonder children over food and water. But there is one place that always seems immune to disasters. There is one place where dreams don't have to wait for the tides to turn or the economy to recover and where their full potential could be realized. So of course, they moved to LA. They moved to LA with the intention of being dancers and studied at the Loretta Butler School of Dance like most upper class black kids in LA and the Nash Dancing Company and the Mary Bruce School of Ballet in Chicago. When they arrived in Hollywood, they paid a visit to Clarence Muse, whom Donald Bogle described as the Dean of Black Hollywood. However, Clarence wasn't exactly rolling out the welcome wagon. He told them, quote, go back east, Miss Standridge. They don't stand a chance. I can't help them, end quote. When she told him that that wasn't even remotely an option, he said, quote, well, good luck, but you'll never make it, end quote. Now, there may have been some semblance of bitterness in Clarence Muse by this point in his career. And if you listen to our episode from last season on the Lafayette Players, you can hear a little bit about Clarence Muse and his career. In the end, however, he gave them $70 for a place to live when they first moved. But he wasn't exactly wrong. There wasn't really a market for a young black trio of girl singers. They weren't exactly as appealing as young black boys who could be used essentially for anything in films. And they didn't have the look of young, dark-skinned black girls who would be used as pickaninnies because the Dandridge sisters were light-skinned. And I would be remiss not to mention how colorism played a role in their success and in their careers taking a different turn than the careers of women, say, like Hattie McDaniel, Ethel Waters, and Louise Beavers. This isn't to say that those women didn't also have massive success, but we can't ignore the differences in the kind of roles they were offered. Side note, you can listen to episodes on each of those women from our first season. But back to the Wonder Children. This warning from Clarence Muse didn't deter Ruby and Mama, who kept the girls on a strict training regimen of dance classes, voice lessons, piano lessons, etc., 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 while they performed around town and when and wherever they could. Mama acted as the girls' manager and disciplinarian, and years later, the girls detailed the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse they faced at her hands. Whether or not Ruby was aware of these things, I did not discover. But Mama was in charge of the girl's career, while Ruby worked as a maid all over Hollywood to keep them afloat. The girls changed their name to the Dandridge Sisters when they added a friend and singer, Etta Jones, to the group. Etta Jones is not to be confused with the jazz singer Etta Jones. No, this Etta Jones of Louisiana was born in 1919, and there's not really much information about her life before or after her stint as a member of the Dandridge Sisters available online or anywhere I've read. But once they were a trio, Mama's management became even more aggressive. The girls didn't even attend regular school until they were in eighth grade. They were taught by Ruby and Mama, 
She entered the girls into a contest at KNX radio station where actress Hattie McDaniel got her start in the Happy Donut Hour. And they won over 30 white contestants. And this is how the world discovered them as musicians and performers. So Ruby and Mama's next order of business was to do what the next logical step in the process for all black actors was. Take them down to the central casting agency and get their girls on the silver screen. The Central Casting Corporation, run by Charles Butler and Jimmy Smith, was the place for Black actors looking to get cast in movies. It was primarily background or uncredited work, but as far as access to Hollywood goes, the Central Casting was it. And soon the girls found themselves among stars like Bing Crosby, Ethel Merman, and the Nicholas Brothers, whom we'll get into eventually. In the 1936 film, The Big Broadcast of 1936, it was an uncredited role, which was not uncommon for Black extras or bit players of the time. But for the Dandridge sisters, this was the big break they had been grinding for all 13-ish years of their life. Because for Black actors... This was some semblance of making it. It was more than most got. And Ruby and Mama wasted no time capitalizing on this fame. You can probably guess where I'm headed next. This started a slew of club and theater bookings and more on-screen appearances, and the girls became pseudo-celebrities in Hollywood and in Black Hollywood. The teenagers were it girls. They were personally invited by Joe Glazer, who is most famous for being the club promoter for the Cotton Club, the most famous club of the 1920s and 30s, and pretty much the only club that allowed black performers regularly. The Cotton Club made stars of people like Ethel Waters, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and now the Dandridge Sisters. The girls were so well-liked that they received a regular slot in the show and were the talk of the town, earning $400 per public performance. They were referred to as the Black Andrews Sisters, traveling to England, Ireland, and the U.S., living and performing in places like Hawaii, the London Podillium, and at studios like MGM and Fox, with stars like Louis Armstrong, Amos and Andy, Bill Bojangles Robinson, and the Marx Brothers, the rain just wouldn't let up. And in that respect, there were no other young Black girls doing it quite like this. There wasn't yet the Supremes or the Rockettes or even a Destiny's Child. Even though the girls' only known recorded songs were with Jimmy Lunsford's band while touring with him in 1938 and 1939. But with great power comes great And with generous acclaim comes the burning desire for the spotlight. Solo. As the years went on, and the girls grew up from precocious to pretty to beautiful and desirable, it seemed that Dorothy's star shined brighter than Vivian's and Etta's. Despite her crippling performance anxiety, she became the It Girl. And her relationship with the It Guy, Harold Nicholas of the Nicholas Brothers, made them the black celebrity power couple. Like Jay-Z and Beyonce level power couple. And Dorothy didn't really need Vivian to speak for her anymore. Her reputation began to precede itself. At the peak of their fame in 1940, the group broke up. Etta Jones said, quote, Our last performance was at Frank Sebastian's Cotton Club. 
end quote. As Dorothy's star had risen, the group had no choice but to go their separate ways, and there was no time for group ventures anymore anyway, and in the years following, their careers took drastically different turns. Etta Jones is the biggest mystery because not much is written or known about her life in the years after the group broke up. I know that she continued to tour with Jimmy Lunsford's band for a while, as the girls had done before their breakup. I know that she married his trumpet player and world-renowned jazz musician Gerald Wilson, but it didn't last for very long. She attended Dorothy's funeral. She retired from the business to raise a family and later worked as a member of the Los Angeles County Department of Parks and Recreation, continuing to pay forward her gifts by teaching dance to the children at local parks. And on June 29, 1997, at the age of 78, she died. I don't know how many children or family members she was survived by, but I don't think her last years were spent solemnly or without joy or love. I think she got out of this business everything she needed and got out of Hollywood before it could do to her what it did to Vivian Dottie, whose stories were much different than Etta's. Vivian's career after the breakup was tumultuous, to put it mildly. Vivian had always been the leader of the group, their spokeswoman, their guiding light. And after all, she was the oldest, but finding her footing without her sister and Etta proved to be nearly impossible. And her financial situation forced her into desperate situations, searching unsuccessfully for work in clubs. However, no one was interested. She found work in films and small bit parts like Lena Horne's breakout film, Stormy Weather, in which she played an extra just four years after playing the London Podillion. She married Jack Montgomery in 1942 and divorced him in 1943 and married and had her marriage at a null to Warren Bracken in 1945 and then married Ralph Bloodsoe in 1946 and divorced him in 1948, all while working in uncredited film roles. In 1955, she appeared on Broadway in the musical Ankles Away, which ran for 176 performances. But the lights dimmed on her Broadway career as quickly as they rose. She just couldn't catch a break. Fifteen years prior, she was the hottest ticket in town. But now, it was 1955. She was older, less desirable, and constantly, constantly, constantly being compared to and living in the shadow of her younger sister Dorothy, whom she attended the Academy Awards with as Dorothy became the first Black actress ever to be nominated in the leading category for a titular role in Carmen Jones, which we'll discuss later. The following year, Vivian disappeared from the public eye and secluded herself, sinking deeper and deeper into a self-pitying depression. It got so bad at one point that Dorothy hired a private detective to find her sister, but couldn't. Vivian had moved to the south of France secretly in 1956 and later to New York City, which Dorothy found out about through the grapevine. The sisters did not keep in contact after that though Dorothy did occasionally send the struggling Vivian money to help her raise her son. They never reconnected or rekindled their friendship or bond, and in 1965, Dorothy unexpectedly died of a drug overdose, and Vivian couldn't gather the strength to attend the funeral. She said, quote, I grieved in my own way, in my privacy. Dottie knew that I loved her, End quote. After Dorothy's death, things were bleak. 
She never got any closure with the only sister she had, and at various points in her life, the only friend she had. But in 1968, she signed a recording contract with Jubilee Records and released a jazz LP called The Look of Love, recording popular songs like Strange Fruit and Love Come Back to Me. You can listen to the album in full on YouTube, and I have to say, personally, it's good. Her voice is strong and smooth like jazz singers of the 50s. The clarity is reminiscent of Ella Fitzgerald. And as I listen, I can hear it. I can hear the pain, the struggle, the longing for a time when her life, when love, when joy was simpler. If I were you, I'd give it a listen. It's only 30-ish minutes and really quite soothing. However, the critics of the time were not as kind as I am. The album flopped and a record contract was terminated just as things picked up is as equally as they came to a screeching halt. In his book, Donald Bogle said that Vivian, quote, left Hollywood on the run, end quote. She had reached the end of her road with this career. There was nothing left for Vivian Dandridge to do because no one wanted her. Vivian moved to Seattle, Washington, and changed her name to Marina Roselle, making it virtually impossible to track down her whereabouts or do any kind of where-are-they-now type exposés on her life. She lived out the rest of her days there, raising her son, eventually rekindling her always tumultuous relationship with her mother before Ruby died of a massive heart attack in 1987, and eventually sitting down with Donald Bogle in 1991 to finally talk about her life, her career, her mother, her sister, and everything no one ever really knew about the Dandridge sisters. No one knows what possessed her to give in to this, but I'm glad she did. And on October 26, 1991, at the relatively young age of 70 years old, Vivian Dandridge suffered a massive heart attack and couldn't be revived. Donald never got to finish his interview. Vivian never got her flowers while she was alive. She never got to see her sisters and her own life work celebrated and the ripple effect that it had moving mountains for young black women in Hollywood. However, Donald said that when he interviewed Vivian, despite her devastating failures post-Dandridge sisters, that her memories of black Hollywood were always sweet ones. I don't think she died with bitterness in her heart, and she never ever lost the love of performing because she spent the last years of her life performing in open mics around Seattle, finding any way to sing. Which brings a smile to my face because in the majority of these stars' life stories, they leave Hollywood for their own sanity because those who stay end up like Dorothy. So I'm glad that Vivian Dandrus found peace. Thank you, Vivian and Etta, for everything you did to create space for young black women in Hollywood at ages where you could barely decipher your own existence most days. Next week, we'll conclude our conversation on the Dandridge sisters and all their wonders. See what I did there? <laughs> By discussing a woman referred to as the African-American Marilyn Monroe, Dorothy Dandridge. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Blacklist, which is hosted, written, and researched by Mariah Woods and brought to you by Textured Air. If you like this, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you're alerted when we drop episodes. All episodes can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and podcast.com. Be sure to check out our website, texturedair.com, for more content celebrating Black women. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Textured Air for updates. Until next time.